Welcome to Startup DNA. I'm your host, Martin Nündung, and I know firsthand how hard and frustrating it can be to build a successful business. In this podcast, I interview the world's leading entrepreneurs and investors on how to turn a business idea into a highly profitable market leader. Oh, if you are interested in raising venture capital, then get my free startup fundraising tips at roadtofunding.com. Let's get started to uncover the secrets to building great businesses. Hey founders, if you are trying to raise money for your startup within the next 6 to 12 months, then this Road to Funding podcast episode will help you out. Over the last five years, one of the biggest startup success stories in Europe is Flixbus. For those of you who don't know Flixbus yet, Flixbus is operating a long-distance bus network across Europe while actually not owning the buses. And Flixbus has already achieved transporting 100 million people over the last years. Therefore, I invited Daniel, who co-founded Flixbus and is not only a great entrepreneur, but also very interested in creating social impact. And today, we will discuss the road to funding for the early Flixbus, from having a business idea to getting started and getting funded. Daniel, great to have you on my podcast. Hey, Martin, how are you? So thanks for having me. Great pleasure. Thanks. I'm doing good. <laughs> it's exactly exactly um, how you stated. So we're very proud that we really could have influenced the life of around 100 million people already. And uh, within those five years, which really changed lots of lives in a positive manner. And um, we're not done yet. Right. I can remember when I was younger, like maybe five, six years ago, and when I wanted to go from A to B, I had to either use the plane or the train, pay tons of cash. And now you are opening up a new opportunity for people going from A to B on a lower budget, yeah, which is incredible. And now I would love to understand how you and your co-founders found out that there might be a huge business opportunity. So generally, uh, Jochen, Andre, and myself, we sat together for quite some time to discuss what would be the company to start up, what might be the idea which has uh, really impact. Because having impact was the only thing what, what really mattered to us. We didn't want to do another app or website just because of, but wanted to change people's life in a positive way, as I said already. Well, it more or less was accidental because... Andre was interested into politics, so to say. Mm -hmm. And uh, one time he came up with a coalition contract of the Roman government and said, it's written down there that it'll open up the bus market, the long distance bus market. Right. I mean, personally, as the techie in our team, I, I didn't get it right away. But what the thoughts behind were is the huge market opportunity. And the mobility market in general is incredibly, incredibly large. That is one of the most important things in my point of view as a young entrepreneur and founder to challenge whether the market you want to target with your service or product is large enough that you have a potential to really grow a great company. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the mobility market had this. And therefore, we said we take that bet and prepare everything and think about what kind of business model would really fit our needs and especially needs of the customer, what we can do different from the incumbents and prepared everything until uh, finally uh, the market was deregulated in early 2013. Right. So, for example, when I'm always thinking about, okay, where might be the next business opportunity? There, from my point of view, there are basically three potential drivers who could 
make it possible that there is a business opportunity. One is the, this kind of legal change, which is significant, which is in the case of Flixbus, or whether it's a specific new technology that enables something that you can create out of value, or that you totally change the business model relative to the incumbents, which might generate value. Yeah? So this is very interesting. And what was going on in your head, especially as you were just midst in your PhD studies back then? And what was the reaction of your girlfriend or family when you told them, hey, I want to start a company? So personally, I didn't do my PhD, but it was Jochen and André who were exactly... Okay, so... <laughs> it doesn't really matter. As a techie, you know, there is basically no real need having a PhD. I'm generally a rather practical guy. But what I did is I had to quit my job. And that's very similar. And the reaction was mostly not supportive at all. The good thing is my girlfriend from day one on was very supportive. And without her and her support, I could not have done and achieved what uh, I had to do until today and take most of my life for the first couple of years into uh, the company. And therefore, she really had to sacrifice. Yeah. But for the rest or most of the other people, they really couldn't understand why Andre and Jochen stopped their PhD and had to quit at Boston Consulting Group and why I really wanted to quit a very well-paid job at Microsoft and just do something where we didn't even know at that point in time whether the law would really apply or no. So that was way before the deregulation itself. So it was we just took a bet at that point in time. And yeah, I mean, people cannot understand because most of the people, especially those who are in, don't have the entrepreneurial spirit, are more risk-averse rather than risk-taking. And therefore, these questions appear. That is fine. And my standard answer actually was, I'm very well educated, right? I studied in Germany and China. I gathered work experience in Germany and the US. And my last job was with a, a well-known company like Microsoft. So I just took that bet because if it would have failed, I was pretty sure to just get a new job then. Right. Then we would only talk about the opportunity costs, but that has to be put against what you will learn in any case, whether you're successful or no. And uh, therefore, I made up my personal equation mm -hmm. and it, it was even. So cool. Yeah, I totally agree with you that uh, today being an entrepreneur and starting their own company is not that big of a risk anymore. Because over the time, it's more socially accepted. And on the other hand, what will you regret once you are very old and dying? Probably the things that you didn't do. And by the way, if you are just going back to the being employed, you will find a job just in your, uh, like in your case, if you are well educated. Briefly explain what were the most critical business model assumptions and how did you validate them with customers and later with your MVP? Well, the assumption was that it's Not only a cheap price, which really make the people go by bus, but it's also the offering you have to come up with. So a proper nationwide and very dense network with schedules who fit the needs of the customer and the experience and the ease of use. So you really can seamlessly have a ticket and ride the bus. You come up with prototypes and mock-ups and lots of talking to, in the beginning, obviously your surroundings, but then also to bus partners and subject matter experts and uh, customers out the street because buses had been there like forever. And even in Munich, we, we had already a central bus station that we just validated our thoughts, uh, whether we are right or wrong. And until now, it proves that, of course, uh, you have to have a competitive pricing, true, 
but the offering itself is much more important. As an example, if it's super cheap to go from Berlin to Hamburg, let's say five euros, right? Mm -hmm. But you personally want to go from Düsseldorf to Frankfurt, you wouldn't care whether Hamburg, Berlin is cheap or no. Mm -hmm. And we'll never come back because you have realized, okay, Flixbus cannot serve what I need. And it's very similar to Amazon. Meanwhile, people don't compare as much in the internet as they did before, uh, but heavily leverage Amazon because they know Amazon is usually among the three cheapest players, but has everything you need literally, and it's so easy to use. Therefore, it's so successful. And that's very similar in the long-distance visitation area where Flixbus is successful. And, and still, it's not only the beginning. You ongoingly have to validate your assumptions and put the customer in the center. And it's not only because it kicked off and after five years, it seems to be working. You continuously with new features, with new services, you have to really double check with customers, invite them to workshops, have scorings like the Net Promoter Score out there, re-challenge what you're doing, the business model and, and the service and the product itself every day. Right. Totally agree with you. 100% customer focus. But if I'm going back and I imagine being Daniel five years back then, I would have asked myself, okay, how much would it cost me to acquire, for example, one customer who's buying a ticket? What might be the potential customer lifetime value? How do I get bus operators as partners on it? Because those are critical elements on my business model, which I need to validate before building something, maybe even. And now the question is, how did you go about validating them before building and hiring like 20, 30, 40 people? Well, the truth is you have to take assumptions. Like always, on a daily basis, and also what especially Jochen and Andre are excellent in, because it was part of their former job at the Boston Consulting Group, you take educated guesses, well assumptions, and go from there. And then on the way, you inspect and adapt and iterate and see whether your assumptions were, were correct. And that relies on how much a bus kilometer can cost in production, It also relies on whether you start with webshop, an app, or potentially through a point of sales first. And it's also how we did our first schedule. It's based on assumption. With that assumption, we started. And the first iteration in that manner was that we double-checked what the offering at carpooling.com was mm -hmm. and compared that because we thought where great offers, there is certain demand. Right. And that was where we validated our assumptions again in terms of our scheduling. And came up with our first final schedule one. And the cool stuff about Flixbus is that you are not that investment or capital heavy because you are relying on bus operators who are basically investing in buses, buying them for a million or so, and then operating them and having basically a revenue share. And how did you acquire the first bus operators as partners? I imagine going back there and being a young guy and then talking to those maybe more older guys who are maybe less educated and I need to try to find out whether we can partner, how to convince them. Tell us about how this went and, and whether there was somehow a cultural adjustment on your side and maybe on theirs as well. So generally... Many of uh, those mid-sized bus companies are also entrepreneurs and, uh, and well-educated. Uh, potentially, they have a different mindset and are not that tech-savvy th than, for instance, I am. But that's okay because, therefore, we, we came up with a partner's idea in our model because we think we, we're complementary. And the truth about how we convinced the first bus companies is you just have to put your feet on the ground. 
For almost one year, Andrea Jochen and myself took my former company car with Microsoft and obviously at that time uh, trains or whatever, whatever vehicle and ran across Germany literally a couple times and ringed a thousand of bells wow. and, and tried to convince and told them the story. And they came up with questions. We took the questions and ran home, prepared new stuff, new ideas, new decks, new numbers, and, and went there again. And then went on and on and on. And uh, the first database we bought with all the addresses uh, with, with Germany's mid-sized bus companies had approximately four to 5,000. And at the end, it turned out that we could have convinced six or seven or so, I think, mm -hmm. which started initially with about 30 to 40 buses. And that was just groundwork. So cold calling, ringing the bells, talking to people over and over again, getting rejected, coming again, getting rejected. There is no fucking, sorry, <laughs> secret about that. <laughs> well, that is totally, totally true. Because just to show people not to glorify entrepreneurs always, yeah, because in the beginning, it's such a hustle and you are doing repetitive, stupid work, but just to get the ball kicking. Cool. Daniel, let's start talking about raising money from investors, especially in the case of Flixbus. At what point in time did you start looking for funding and how much money did you try to raise back then and for what specific initiatives? So initially, we backed the company with our own savings. And the second step was that we applied for a loan at KfW, which is one of the German government-owned banks to support growth and businesses in Germany. And for that, we are still paying off. That's where we were liable for on a personal level. And that altogether gave us a budget of almost 300,000 euros with what we started with. Because when there is no law applied, so we're still in the era where the market wasn't opened, then it's very hard to even find business angels yeah. and professional investors like not close because they usually need a proof of concept. So we had to do that our, our own, which also is good because when then talk, start talking to investors, they really see, okay, those guys just put everything on the table. Right. And then uh, first of all, we took a couple um, business case and business plan challenges and At one of those, we, we met our first business angel, which is uh, Dr. Heinz Rauber, the former founder of Hotel D. And he just saw the similarity between our model and, and the hotel business, where he was active in and said, hey, guys, I'd like to support you. And, and took the risk, even though it was still before the deregulated happened, and, and gave us a couple hundred thousand euros, I suppose. I'm not quite sure exactly anymore. And, and that altogether brought us to the day where the first bus hit the road. In the meantime, a couple of bus partners also wanted to join not only as partners, but also as investors. And we opened up like a second larger business angel round. Oh, cool. And yeah, altogether, ourselves and the angels brought us to the point in time where we could, could run the first buses. And then we had that concept after a while and started with talks to, to serious venture capital funds. And that That takes that takes some time. But back to the business angels. Seriously, in my point of view, the first investor is the most important one. Because A, if he or she goes in, the others potentially will have a look at him and say, well, if he double-checked the, the team and, and did some, some due diligence, we also can follow. A little bit like lemmings, though, to be true. Uh, to, to be yeah, right. And also, the first investor has a proper network. If you really... Select 
carefully and have the ability to select carefully that these guys don't bring only money at the table, but also network and, and, and experience and, and the knowledge. And and there we got luck with, with Heinz because he also was from day one on not only supportive, but very trustful. Parts of the original shareholders agreement are still in our current one. And uh, he didn't really uh, try yeah. to cheat on us, which is great. And therefore, the fundament was set. That is important. Nice. Tell me about your feelings and thoughts when you went through this process of raising money for the first time. Well, fun fact is we always try to have as many money as possible to move. We try to never maneuver ourselves into a situation where we had to rise. We continuously talked and, and also, meanwhile, continuously evaluating whether there is a chance out there, a good partner, and so on. And uh, it's not that we wait until we really need to raise. And also, that was how we did it in the beginning. So it was it was very interesting. We learned a much. It, it's like a challenge. So if you know that's the way to work, and at a certain point you need the, the financial support, it's a challenge to sell your idea, your product, your service, and yourself as a team as well, so people can can believe in you. And that's basically in the early stages the most important thing. They have to believe in you as a team to be confident that you're capable of executing that potentially also adapting your idea and and that you are really a serious founders team. And how did you do that? As I mentioned already, one important point was that we brought everything on a table. We quit our jobs, we uh, applied for a loan and got it. We just put our savings into the company. So that was also a good sign that uh, that we made it serious. On the other side, in terms of the relationship, Andre and myself, we know each other for almost 25 years and that People realize that if they see us, so that's that's good. And the good thing is that uh, Andre and Jochen met when they joined BCG. It's also like years ago. Since we had so much time to figure out what our business idea is, we had the chance to create a common vision understanding of entrepreneurship and how to run a company. That's our core of our entrepreneurial team, of our partnership, of our business friendship, so to say. There is no doubt. We never, ever had a single minute where we had a doubt what is the core and where we want to move. And it is just the same. And you feel that uh, from the outside that there is no friction. Mm -hmm. Of course, on a daily basis, you discuss strategies, operational challenges, everything. But in the core, I think from day one on, people talking to us sense that we are acting as one. And these two matters, uh, in my point of view, were the most important ones that could have convinced investors among the business idea itself. And the business idea itself, as said, what was important, it was important that we had a scalable asset light business model. It was important that the market we, we targeted is huge. So the potential, the growth potential is huge. Yes. And it was important that most of the competition were either incumbents, had no modern digital touch, were potentially the large ones, were potentially governmental owned, so therefore slow. And the market in general was a little intransparent and there was an obvious gap between between your personal car and the railroad. And yes, in some areas, carpooling just was at least substituting a little bit the bus in Germany where it was not allowed. But obviously, uh, carpooling is not as safe and reliable and comfortable as the bus. So it was it was just very clear that things will happen. The only question which nobody really could answer from day one, how fast this thing will take off. And that's the risk investors just have to take, especially super early ones. Right. 
And how, how did you find out, reach out and meet the first institutional investors? So fun story. Mm -hmm. When the first buses hit the road, that was exactly during the regulation. We were the first company who have, who have sent buses out after the regulation. And therefore, we had a huge hype in, in, in press, which is great. It just supports you as you, you basically serve a press wave. And therefore, also investors, you know, and, and see and realize what is happening. Well, in that case, Holtzbrink basically tried to reach out, but they couldn't because we only had one phone at that point in time. <laughs> and it rang 20 with, with customer inquiries. So at the end, Holtzbrink just dropped Jochen a Xing message and said, hey, guys, we would really like to talk about an investment. Can you please reach out? We can. We cannot get a hold of you. <laughs> yeah. That's and funny. we did. Well, also there, our investment manager, um, he just he just realized basically the market potential. Because also in VC, right, if there is a proof of concept, yes. which means there is already certainty that the team and the, the general things work, for those early and mid-stage uh, VCs, Like Holtzbrink, growth is ultra important because speed is the only thing that matters in, in those early days. And uh, growth only can come with a certain market size. If not, growth is limited. Right. And that that Holtzbrink saw from day one on. And therefore, uh, it's only a negotiation about uh, the terms, basically. And uh, uh, we figured it out. Cool stuff. I mean, totally agree with you that once you have some kind of traction and uh, you can convince them that the market opportunity is huge and maybe you have some kind of first mover advantage or some other kind of secret sauce, then it's only talking about uh, the deal terms. What was, the, from your point of view, the most time-consuming and annoying thing during the whole fundraising process you wished you could have eliminated? So usually you have all your thoughts in mind already. You know that it works. You know how it works. The others don't. That's a challenge. So you come up with your first deck and they have questions. You come up with your first case and they have questions. And you have like, seriously, that process is a hundred of iterations. And it, it gets annoying at one point in time. But you, you cannot come up with everything in detail uh, from day one on because it might be too overwhelming, especially if it's a complex business like ours. Right. But that going back and forth re remembered me a little bit how we had to convince our bus partners. But obviously, at least we could have started with a couple thousand bus partners and ended up with six to seven. It's not like a couple thousand VCs and you have uh, in the early phases like six, seven or eight right. hook you up. So you really have to take that serious. And uh, what also was interesting for us, not necessarily annoying, but interesting, we really always thought bottom up. So we had super, super crisp calculations. It was all all sharp numbers and the investors really try to push you a little right and and, and we'll see mm -hmm. where's the limit and that in in some discussions was a little awkward because they started then really uh, taking their fantasies and asking funny questions so yeah and and how about like green skyrockets to the mars and how would that affect your revenue plan and we're like well Didn't we start to talk about buses? And, and, and <laughs> they really challenge, uh, and I guess they want to to see whether you have the fantasy to develop your company further and, and your fantasy, which goes beyond the core business itself. And that initially was hard for us because then the assumptions are from very well-educated guests to just assumptions. Those things were interesting to learn and the almost... Unlimited iterations were sometimes painful, 
but as said, uh, looking back, you cannot avoid because if you if you put everything together in the first deck, you'll just overwhelm. And if they don't get it at, at a glimpse, they will not continue with you. So it has to be an iterative process. Totally agree. So first, when you send them the, the first pitch deck, just to get this kind of investor meeting, and then you get the Q&A session. And then afterwards, you can send them some additional materials and answer their questions. And also, because you cannot pitch to 1000 VCs or so, you need to do everything that you can in order to increase the conversion rate from first contact to VC to getting a deal or a term sheet. Okay, this brings me perfectly to what we are trying to discuss now, which is basically one of those pitch deck iterations that you are happy to share with us. Because you've brought this uh, very cool document. And what I would like to do with you is to discuss uh, the key messages of those different slides and why you presented them in this specific type of way. So for the readers, you can just uh, look at the presentation that is attached to this uh, article. And yeah. Now it's over to you, Daniel. Let's start with a, a brief overview. So basically there are three parts on it. So one is basically showing uh, how big the market is and how the cooperation model between Flixbus and the bus operators works. The other one will then will be some kind of uh, how they acquire customers and that they are happy. And the last one will be what is actually the traction that they got and how does the growth trajectory potentially look like. Now, over to you, Daniel. Exactly. So uh, that's one of the decks we discussed with our investors. And basically, as I mentioned already, to start up with, we thought it's always good to really come from, from the large numbers. In our case, from the market, how large the intercity bus market or the long distance uh, transportation market is. So that investors like immediately see, okay, basically the sky is the limit. And, uh, how we want to tackle that market there we we started with introducing our product and and what the differentiators are so buses had been known forever but they were always unsexy because either you uh, have memories how you got beaten up on the way to school or how your grandma brought home a heating blanket and we just made it cool by having you know internet aboard cool bus drivers snacks and drinks and and and, and power blocks and that was how we wanted to tackle that market and that that together was starting point then you continue how that comes together. The long distance market in general and the product. And, and what do we build out of that? We basically build out of that a nationwide bus network and, and a certain schedule. And there you just show up how it can look like, you know, that they can really touch and feel uh, what is meant. And, and therefore, we also, for instance, came up with a visualization like a subway map because people are just familiar with that. Right. It's, from my point of view, it's always a great strategy to really paint how the future would be looking like and making it really crisp and tangible. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And then it depends on whether you have a product or a service uh, or what is special. And in, for our for our business, it's special that we have a good partnership and collaboration with our with our midsize bus partners, which are the key pillars of our of our business. And that's a differentiator, though, because either before that we had standalone companies who do so, and there are restrictions. Or you have like subcontractors, only, you know, in German, Lohnkutsche. Uh, so only people who are not uh, entrepreneurial incentivized to do a great job. Both were suboptimal in our point of view. So we created a corporation uh, to leverage the bus partner's operational experience, to share uh, the investments, and to also have further entrepreneurs and their spirit on board to, to continuously improve the quality and the product and everything surrounding that. 
and that's still the core of our the core of our business model. So we only do things together with partners. Right. Because from my point of view, the slide five shows one cool thing that you briefly explained before is, which is basically you make the market a little bit more transparent. Because when I'm looking at, at the left slide, it's, it says, okay, some bus operators or subcontractors are running a, a small network uh, on the right side, an even smaller subset. So if I would be a person who wants to go from A to B, then I really need to find first the, the right website and then do the booking. Maybe I, I don't trust even the website. And what you are doing there is basically saying, hey, guys, we have all the different bus operators on our side. You can trust us. We will handling all the operations in the back end, basically. And you are just then going to the uh, central bus station, take the bus, and that's it. Exactly, exactly. Following this slide, we then stepped into more or less what is our value proposition? What do we bring on the table? Because everybody now realized, okay, these guys don't drive the buses. <laughs> what do they do then? And um, this is what at a glimpse we showed up in the next slide. We said, all right, we really come up with a product. We do the network planning. We, we, we tell everybody where the demand is and where we have to drive the buses. We do all the sales and marketing and more or less bring the people into the bus. And obviously, we, we do all the sales and distribution. So we will come up with a technology backbone and everything related to how we distribute through which channels And all those models, like how we do revenue management and how a certain digital experience has to look like and things like that. So uh, the investors really get what Flixbus as the headquarter does and what the contribution of our partners are. And that together, this is the, the, the value proposition itself of the model overall. Nice. And especially what I like about this slide is that you really show the type of synergy between Flixbus and the bus operators. Because I can really imagine, but again, this is just an educated guess, that the bus operators maybe not have this kind of deep marketing knowledge of how performance marketing works, SEO works and all this kind of stuff. And also for the network planning, what we have discussed before, which was if you have to, let's say, cooperate with different bus operators and really cooperating between them and putting them on a networking map, then, of course, you would need to have this kind of intelligence and work on this function. Really great, great slide. So what happens next, Daniel? Then it's how, how we split the responsibilities and why it's important that we're talking to entrepreneurs because entrepreneurship means there's an upside, but also there's a risk. And we explain that in general, we have a revenue sharing model. And obviously, it depends on the utilization. And the partner uh, gets always more than that Flixbus. And it, it depends a little bit, as said, on the utilization. Then we were also talking about, for instance, that obviously the invest of the buses is been done by the bus partners, whereas we have to take the invest in the technology platform. So it, it's shared, but therefore it's just possible to really grow fast uh, because if you would have your buses, all of them, on your own P&L and not uh, distributed among the partners, It will challenging to grow fast. Be challenging to grow fast because a bus is up to half a million. And now, meanwhile, we're talking about a thousand buses. And you can imagine, right. not investor in the world and no bank <laughs> will will just give you that for for the assets in the PNL. And last but not least, it's about the infrastructure itself. So that the partners have not only the buses, but obviously, since they were in the business already, they have depots already take care about maintenance and the operations and repairing and drivers and all that stuff. Therefore, it, it's clear that you can generate a fair business model, which works and, and also creates a certain cash flow 
So it's just the financial proof of concept in a nutshell, so to say. Right. I, I find it always very, very important to really make the unit economics clear to investors at some point, deal negotiation. And on the left side with this revenue sharing, this shows clearly, or at least I have some kind of feeling yeah, how the unique economics work, how, how much capacity utilization you would need to have in order to break even on a purpose level, for example. That, that's true. But what we found important is that it has to give an insights or an idea and a feeling. What we never did is we really never just send decks out with unexplained numbers. We never ever sent out a pure business case in Excel, never. Nobody got that. And we also tried to really avoid to send out uh, things in, in PowerPoint. Obviously, we had more detailed decks with us when we met those guys. But without explanation, if it's a more complex business model, it wouldn't work. If they misunderstand something might be a minor thing, uh, they just, well, you know, take an assumption. And if that is wrong, it potentially can break the process. Right. So therefore, give them an idea, true, but it has to be explained in person. Totally agree. Mm -hmm. Moving on, we again uh, switch the focus on what is important to us and what we uh, more or less achieved already. So how we really in marketing made our, our brand popular, where we appeared already in the press. Initially, we did much of guerrilla marketing. The cool thing, though, is it creates always nice pictures and pictures tell stories. Mm -hmm. And you have, you know, you can come up with great numbers in the beginning, even though you do not have the budget yet. So uh, those copy ads, which are mentioned there, or the bikes itself, it's like large numbers for a super young company, but it doesn't cost you a ton of money. Right. And then it's always good initially if you can partner up with well-known brands. And that's the next slide where we really managed to get uh, a partnership with Lidl, where they more or less sold our tickets similar to those formerly cheap Deutsche Bahn tickets. And we did the same with Lidl and, and therefore... Well, you get your own brand attached to a very well-known brand and that in a very, very large scale distribution network. And that shows the investors, A, well, you are already recognized and B, that there is, you know, there are several ways of, of distribute that just makes up fantasy, so to say. And you have some real traction in terms of tickets sold. Yeah? And I mean, going back like four years or so, uh, so basically one year after you've started and selling them like uh, 180,000 or 420,000 uh, tickets is crazy. And because the cool stuff is those people maybe then will recurringly come to you and book the next ticket via your platform or will tell the family. So we are basically having a, a type of a user base already generated from which you can grow, which is really awesome. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And creating that user base and, and retaining them is also part of the next slide, though. So when we're talking about how you really get close to the customer, these days it's all about the app. And the fun fact is uh, what you might realize is that the early app looks a little prototypish. <laughs> But come up with something, I truly believe... You have to embarrass yourself a little bit with the first shot. Uh, what we did, the first version which came out had not even the ability to book. But we showed up, okay, the app is important for us. It's mobile first. And also that uh, this specific uh, product, uh, like long distance, cheap mobility, is being recognized also by the people and by the app stores. And uh, that gives you a glimpse or it gives the investor a glimpse where your tech focuses on like towards the customer, that's super important. 
And if you start and it's potentially unique as it was with us, so we were the only one to, to, to have an app back in time, then it really gives you and, and your, you know, your company a certain, um, a certain profile. And uh, these days, it has, to be, it has to be a tech profile. Mm-hmm. And as we have talked about already a couple times, the only thing what ongoingly makes a business successful is the customer, the satisfied customer. And therefore, you really have to make clear that you put the customer in the middle. And even though you're a super young company, you really take care about their satisfaction and um, how to treat the customer and make sure that you are a love brand. And the reason is not only because, as I said, that's the only thing what ongoingly makes a business successful. There is also a very rational uh, reason behind. If people love you and, and spread the word of mouth, uh, they'll come back and they lower the customer acquisition costs, which is right. important for a business like ours, which is not like software business with 90% margin, obviously. Right. Let's talk about the growth potential and expansion. Exactly. Well, at the end, you really have to somehow make the investor a little bit mouth-watering so they want to continue and, and come up with, with serious question and, and work towards a term sheet. And therefore, it's important that you show what you got, uh, what the growth already was. And in that short period of time, I mean, that we were talking about, I don't know, it's it was maybe a year after we have launched or so. So it's not like a super old company. And therefore, uh, you really show what you got and then you show you show where it can go next. And that means what the growth was year over year in terms of uh, bookings, in terms of networks, so how many buses you drive, in terms of utilization, and potentially also in terms of traffic on the website. That means how you're recognized from the outside and all these things. So it's like, this is where we are, but there is so much room for improvement, so much potential. And then you, you basically get into details and tell them how it works um, uh, over time. So in terms of what the net order intake is, how it grew, how ticket sales really have also certain peaks and how it took off through Christmas, for instance, the amount of customers is and how that developed and, and all of these things. So you, you come up with a couple numbers, which are, really should show initially just rapid growth. That's important, rapid growth. Uh, it's not about that someone says, ooh, you're one and a half years old. It has to be super profitable yet. Not at all. But it has to grow like hell. Right. And uh, it also has to grow uh, sustainable. Yeah, utilization is important for us. So it's growing because obviously in the beginning, it's not uh, as high because nobody knows you, but it, it has to grow. And the traffic itself, because only if you're known and recognized as a brand, people will go directly to you. So you're relevant set of what people choose for traveling. And also it reduces your cost of, you know, online advertisement and online marketing. Well, at the end, you still have to be the number one in the online market because it's not about TV commercials anymore or even offline commercials. It's about who is best recognized online and has the highest search volume or the most, the most Facebook fans. And that is something which every investor, meanwhile, knows because there are even companies built on that pattern, like Snapchat. Uh, they're only built on that pattern. Well, and that, that's about the core. And then you, you go beyond the core and then tell them, okay, if it works in, in, in Germany, there are so many other beautiful countries in Europe around we, we can cover and explain a little bit why we can cover them and, and what, what the go-to-market strategy is. At the end, you also come up with 
a very crisp statement what the potential need of funding might be. So they have, you know, a sense of what is potentially needed. Great. Daniel, what are your top three startup fundraising tips for first-time entrepreneurs to 10x their chances of raising money? So generally, uh, generally, you really should start raising money when you don't need it. I mean, you know when you need it because it's part of your business case, but don't do raising under pressure. When you're nervous, people will recognize. On one hand, on the other hand, there's a higher risk you'll work out precisely. Uh, unprecise work is something which creates uncertainty and uncertainty is the thing investors hate most. That's the first thing. The second thing is if you start too early with large investors, you potentially learn something, but they also use really up your time. After a while, it wouldn't make sense anymore and, and you really lose the time to concentrate on the execution. Because that's that's the core of the business. That That's what, what matters. Too large investors, too early, could be dangerous. And also, no matter what point in time, but after... After a couple of meetings, let it be four or five or so, you really should have a clear, a clear path to a term sheet. If this is, isn't the case, the, the chance that it'll happen goes dramatically down. And also, you pick your, your investor precisely and have reference calls before you, so know how they work and if you really want them. Because it's not only about the money, especially in early days, it's about the network and what they bring on the table. And um, that that's very relevant. And you can do that via reference calls and also double-checking in which branch they're working, which, which verticals and things like that. So it's very similar to how you would apply for a job. You, you really should individualize your, your application and there were your pitch deck and not uh, reuse everything and just send it out to a thousand investors. That, that, that doesn't make sense. They recognize that. And as I said, you really have initially to teaser yourself on that it's interesting and the, the core figures uh, like the market size are written down, but don't come up with too much without uh, having the chance to meet them personally. Sometimes there might be a call in advance or, or the investors call you back and request more. Better uh, put that together to a on-site meeting where you really have the chance to explain things. That's much, much better than just uh, sending things um, over. Right. Yeah, and last but not least, those people are smart people, so you have to really believe the numbers. It was sometimes challenging that they really requested us to do more more uh, top-down and, and, and come up with more fantasy, but from what, what we started up with is was really bottom-up. We really calculated every single cost and, and everything from the penny on, and, and that is something which gives you a good fundament. And also, if you if you start putting things together in some kind of business case like an Excel, better do that in a high quality from day one on. So really figure out whether they want quarterly figures or monthly figures, and not only just crump it together somehow, but build it so it it can be changed or scaled, because this will be your ultimate tool set to convince the investors. Because based out of that Excel, you'll also build your PowerPoint up on top. With the numbers, and of course, well, the skill of PowerPoint, having symbols, pictures, which talk and, and tell stories, is much more important than too much, too much text. I guess that's what we have learned, and what for us turns out to be successful. Great. And what's the number one thing that you see that other founders struggle with in terms of fundraising? Seriously, most of the time, they cannot really tell their story well. 
sometimes even in tech, it's a complicated product. Sometimes it's not a clear definition about the market. And that ends up to that some founders are not able to really explain one or two or three sentences what, what your value proposition or your product or service is. And uh, if you're not even able to tell that, how would you be able to build up proper slides? And if investors don't get it within the first minute, screwed up. Totally agree. You need to hook them up the same like with customers. Uh, because if customers, you're selling a product or a service. Exactly. To the investors, you're selling equity. That's it. Cool. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Uh, very insightful. 